is up, kangaroo chasers? Well, this one, this one was meant to be a very special uh, project by Big T. He's been working very hard on it, did a couple of interviews for it, and uh, they're in the can ready to go. But something's come up in the last week, uh, a little bit of news, which you've, you'd all be aware of. A lot of you have been talking about it on social media. Many of you have been asking us on social media. If you hit me up on the DMs, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at uh, Chasing Ruse. On Twitter, it's actually at Chasing Ruse Pod. Uh, but you're all you're all talking about it. It was in the news, and I've got Phil Kaplan from Forty Twenty Magazine here to talk with me about it. So the question is, what if the NRL owned half of Super League? I'm Michael Carboni. This is episode ninety two of the Chasing Kangaroos podcast. You're listening to Chasing Kangaroos, the rugby league podcast for fans who are passionate about seeing the game played in more places. All right, Kangaroo Chasers, well, what if the NRL owned part of Super League? It's something that we're all discussing, we're all talking about, it's come up in the media, it's, it seems to be a real thing. And I thought I'd go straight to the man, our man over in the UK, Mr. Phil Kaplan. Welcome to Chasing Kangaroos, buddy. It's good to speak to you again. Mate, always fantastic to speak to you. And I'll just run through some of your, your credentials, Phil, and let me know if I've missed anything. But you're the co-director of 4020 Magazine. You're the host of the 4020 Podcast, which I love listening to every week or whenever you do record live or not. Uh, you're an author. Uh, you're, you're the media manager of the Rugby League European Federation. Mate, I think I've covered everything. Have I missed anything? Uh, there's a number of hats in the hall, and then it's which one you wear when you leave. <laughs> um, so there, there probably are a couple of things, but nobody cares. Don't worry. <laughs> no worries. Mate. I'm, I'm old. I'm old, and I've seen a lot of rugby league, and that's about it. To be fair, you're a big fan, and you know what you're talking about. And uh, it's certainly a pleasure having you on. And you, you kind of alluded to it, but last time we spoke, it was uh, episode three of the official International Rugby League podcast. Uh, listeners of this this show can find it between episodes 40 and 41 where we had the International Rugby League miniseries. So go back if you haven't already. Episode 3 of that pod, great chat with Phil Kaplan, and I think I had a great chat with Ashton Sims on that episode as well. Um, so, yeah, I think there was James Simpson there as well. So we had some great great convos there, and, and Phil, I've been meaning to, meaning to speak to you ever since then. You've certainly got some great thoughts about um, rugby league in the UK, in Europe specifically and the direction where things should be going. And I just thought with the current news that, that everyone's talking about, of course, I refer to Sky, the Sky News article on December 9, uh, which said that the NRL is in early stage talks about buying a big stake in English English Rugby Super League. Um, I thought you were the perfect man to come on and talk talk about this. Well, you're very kind. Um, it's not as if the world didn't change since we last spoke. And I guess that's the root of all this as well. Um, every sport uh, has looked at uh, you know, change and, uh, and how it responds to this coronavirus pandemic and yeah. what it needs to do to become, um, I don't know, they were all built on sand and it needed something like this to expose the financial models 
that underpinned all sports, whether that's Premiership football or or A League over there in Australia. And I think rugby league is going through one of those real retrospective periods where it looks at why, when it's presented with a real major challenge, it has no reserves to deal with it. And yet, for the last 25 years in both hemispheres, it's probably been as rich as it's ever been in terms of the income coming in. Um, so I think we, we've all had the utmost uh, sympathy and empathy with everything everybody's been going through, particularly those who have lost loved ones. And uh, But what it has done from a business of sport point of view is it's, it's put a real focus on discussions about how do you best emerge from this where every part of your business is functioning far more in tune rather than perhaps looking at its own markets and not worrying too much about what's happening elsewhere. Um, a classic example of that, we've got about, what, 800 full-time professional players in the world playing the game. Yeah. Um, and whilst we've spoken on many an occasion uh, about how important it is that the Pacific Islanders now are, are made to feel part of it and how the Southern Hemisphere at least is looking at perhaps expanding its sphere of influence into some new areas that are close to home. Um, I'm not sure now. You can, you've can. you got two choices, I reckon, now. You can either be um, a, a, a minority uh, sport, but, but as big a fish as you can in that pool, and rugby league currently occupies that position, whether it's in Australia or it's over here, or you can look to become something more global and have that wider appeal. And I think it, the, the, the choices are stark that you are now going to be either one or the other. Uh, and I think some people in, the, in, in Australia are probably realising that, um, that that is the point that they're coming to, which is why they're looking at, um, at maybe taking a financial stake in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. But perhaps more importantly, this is a really good time to invest. Yeah. Uh, you know, m- markets are low, confidence is low. If, if you are going to, um, bring in any kind of, of corporate partner, um, you can offer them a lot more than you could have done nine months ago, yeah. uh, and you'll have an audience that at least is willing to listen. So I, I, I think it, the parameters are being set that there are items on agendas that were being talked about that weren't, yeah. and now they are. How that resolves depends very much on the devil in the detail, what's actually being discussed, what would be the terms, what would be the return on investment, what would be required by an investor if they were going to buy into a global idea of rugby league. But the fact that we can even sit down and say there's a possibility we can we can put a, an agenda item down on a meeting somewhere, that shows that the rugby league world has changed more than having two points for a drop goal. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. That's some other big news today. Some of the uh, some of the rule changes of the NRL, but and look, I I won't talk too much about those. But I think the two points. I think some. It's funny how people go nuts online. Like it's not like we're going to be kicking two point field goals all game, and it's going to turn into a rugby union match where they kick penalty goals all game. I don't think it's going to get to that point. It's very difficult to kick a field goal from right in front. Um. So yeah, forty meter drop goal. Anyway, that's. A, total another conversation phil but i love how like you, well, yeah go it, for it it is but there is a relevance here that if you yeah. seriously want to bring the two hemispheres together and have a common goal then one of the parts of that business doesn't really want to be operating a set of rules that are different to the rest of the world I mean, we're still coming to terms with the fact that you know our scrum's going to come back in the northern yeah. hemisphere um 
2021. So I just think it, it, it's a wry smile for those of us that have been looking at stuff like this for a very long time to say, on the one hand, you're feeding us a story saying we need to work closer together and that it, it, we're stronger in unity. And, it, and you're just sitting down there and reflecting that that actually might be a good idea. And then the same body that's saying that, another arm of it is saying, by the way, would you change the way we operate you go yeah. I, i'm not sure those two are compatible even if we're not talking about the same thing so yeah a wry smile when uh, when i heard that well it's a very good point because a lot of people say you know one of the positives of the nrl perhaps owning part of super league is that the the competitions can align in terms of rules in terms of scheduling and structure but will the nrl be able to flippantly go back and forth and change rules and will it work and in in both hemispheres and so on and so forth so it's a good point and mate you've if your high-level sort of view of the whole thing, um, there's just so much there to unpack. I don't even know where to begin, but you, you mentioned something there about how the world has changed and we either need to be global or more local. And there's a decision coming up. At time of recording, Super League uh, is about to accept their 12th team uh, to replace the Toronto Wolfpack. By the time this episode is released, that news will be out there. Um, and the big conversation has been do we continue to try and expand and try and introduce a, a Toulouse or a, or a London, or do we go local and bring back a Bradford or a Lee or something like that? And look, we can either, we're going to look like either fools or absolute geniuses by making a prediction. And by the time people listen, um, they're going to know the result. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on A, where you think it should go and B, where you think it will go and if they're different. I think we need to take a step back and look at, again, why would the NRL and their corporate investors, who may be the same sort of company that yeah. were looking at Super League separately anyway, yeah. why would they want to get involved at this time? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I think there are a multitude of reasons, but one of them I think is what has happened with Toronto. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, and again, uh, you will know better, much better than I will the intricacies of the politics of rugby league in, in Australia. But I suspect there, there was a, a, an eagle eye spread on Super League and how it developed the North American market. Yep. And I think there were some opportunities that um, the NRL could see in having um, that kind of area of, the, of that geography and the potential audience and uh, the corporate partners that would come in with it and long, longer-term media deals. I think that there was a thought that we'll leave it to Super League to develop North America because it'll benefit everybody. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the Kangaroos were even talking about maybe staging a, uh, a warm-up game in Toronto on the way to the Ashes series that couldn't happen. You know, that, again, to, a year ago, that would have been deemed the most fanciful idea possible. But there was a chance it might have happened. Yeah. I think the the fact that the, there was a test in Denver, and and for all the fact that um, you know that it may or may not have been done with the right entrepreneur, twenty thousand people watched a game between two nations, neither of whom they had any great affiliation to. There's potential there when you when you looked at the the twenty twenty five World Cup. And the fact that, you know, it was destined to be going to North America. You look at um, Ottawa, obviously, a bit to the table over here. And, uh, and and there has been talk of New York and whether that's crystallised into something that, uh, that, that, that a potential club. We don't know because we, ne we never really got that to the starting line. But I, I wrote a piece in March about um, NRL Europe. Yep. 
Um, and that split North America by saying the Eastern Seaboard could quite clearly be part of a Super League competition. And the Western Seaboard is clearly part of a development plan of the NRL in yep. terms of travel distance. Yep. Now, I live on number one ivory tower fantasy island, <laughs> so I didn't expect anybody to see any of this seriously. I'm next to the number, I'm next yeah, I mean, number all, two, so we, don't worry. But what we what we're suddenly talking about is that the NRL have an interest in that market, however that developed, and then all of a sudden, almost overnight and on a whim, Super League decide that they're going to ditch Toronto. Yeah. Um, and I think the issue over here wasn't um, the ownership group. I think clearly not enough credit was given to David Argyle for the money he did put in. There was a lot of focus on the money that he he, he ultimately couldn't put in. Yeah. Um, there was an issue with Carlo Livolsi and his liquidity. Um, again, I'm not a forensic accountant, but some people who looked at his business said um, at some point you will need some financial commitment from him. But in terms of his worth, um, he, he is in a position that is is much better than some current owners of other Super League clubs. So, yeah. again, the issue became not about whether Toronto should be in or not, but the process of saying that North America wasn't developable as a market. And I think as a, as a game, we've always been quite ambitious. Um, expansion going right back to sort of, you know, the, the first test series against the All Golds and, and the first Kangaroos that came over were, were held in places like Birmingham and London and Edinburgh. We, we've never been frightened. You know, Cheltenham uh, was the first deciding venue for, for the All Golds. So we, we've never been frightened to have expansion on the agenda. We just haven't done it very well, would yeah. be my argument. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the the NRL have had looked at well, we need new markets. Super League is being asked to develop a market that we can either help with or jump on the cob or um, work with. And then suddenly that market isn't there. So I haven't answered your question yet, but I do think that one of the reasons they're looking at perhaps investing is because of what happened to Toronto and North America. Yep. I also think that the, the other thing to go alongside, are you global or local, is the event culture we have a pretty static audience we know we know the demographic and we yeah. know we've got to do something about that because we need it it's changed and we need it to change and there's a lot of great stuff been written and spoken about not least with professor tony collins about the the deindustrialization about the north of the north of england and pinning the supporter base over here and 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 clearly you know the mix of white and blue collar workers that follow the game in Australia and New Zealand is something that somebody like Steve Maskell has written about a lot. And Yes, we have to change our audience profile. I get that. But one of the things any kind of newer or younger audience seems to want is events. And and you look at what have we got to sell? Well, the pinnacle of the two domestic seasons should still be the World Club Challenge. Um, You know, I'm old enough to remember the, the 1987 game at Central Park between Wigan and Mali that effectively kicked off the idea that the champions of, of the Southern Hemisphere played the champions of the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, 37,000 people packed into that famous historic ground. You couldn't move. It was absolutely brutal. Not a single try was scored. In many ways, it was the first we'd seen of origin, first hand over here. Um, and there's a market for it. But the World Club Challenge is something that we don't even decide if we're going to do it until we know who's in it or can be bothered to play or yeah. when the, when we're going to fit it in. Well, you know, again, there's an event there that uh, a, a, an investor could pick up on or 
competitions working in much closer alignment um, could not only make something out of, but but clearly it, it's a global product if 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 you want. Um, State of origin is another one. You know, I, I, I think we, we love it over here. And we've seen what the NFL have done by bringing games to London and gradually introducing an audience that is really with the product to actually seeing it live. And if I was the NRL, and I was going to say it's a three-match series and the likelihood is there's going to be one game in Queens there's going to be one game in New South Wales, that third game is a development tool. Uh, and Perth sort of worked for us and Adelaide sort of worked for us. And think New Zealand might work for us. And the obvious place to cite one of those games with some real groundwork done over a period of time is possibly a London. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you've got so many expats in the capital. You've got so you, you've got so many people in the north of England who travel to get the opportunity to watch a game like that. Yep. And if you could make a success of that, then you're clearly opening up to the idea of maybe North America being the next staging point. And then the last one is the World Cup. Um, which again is is such an you know you look back at the history of that competition it's amazing that in 1954 the French brought it to the table you try to draw a timeline between when that's been played and when it's next going to be played and where it might be played and when the decisions are made and it's it's a real ad hoc competition but it should be the shining light what we do yeah everything should spin out of a a four-year world cup cycle um, and, and I think, you know, 2021, the saviour of the sport, particularly over here, is going to be the World Cup. But what are we doing with 2025? What are we doing with 2029? We can't keep bouncing this between Australia and England, in which case, you know, could we have it in France in the interim and then maybe move it to North America in 2029? All of these things, I think, suddenly become a really important discussion that isn't relatable just to the international ball, just to the NRL or just to Super League. What coronavirus has taught us is if we don't work together and we don't take the best of what we've got, uh, and there are other intrinsic benefits as well, as in the distribution of players, um, because clearly there's an oversupply in the NRL and an undersupply in Super League, then I think, you know, we'd be disservice to the 125 years that the sport's been in existence. So this is probably the most long-winded answer to a question that you asked three days ago, (laughs) Um, the whole expansion policy of who the 12th Super League team is, it's actually bigger than the decision that they're making. And I think the worry that we've got here is that the decision to drop Toronto was done through one process. The decision to promote a team from League One, which is an expansion team in Newcastle, which makes sense, has been done through a second process. The decision on who the 12th team is going to be in Super League is actually being done through a third process. So you've got different bodies and independent commissions making those decisions. It's very, very hard to have um, all the dots in so many different places to join them up. Um, And I think this is a decision of expediency because they've already decided that the 12th club is only getting half the resource. They're almost being set up to fail. The likelihood is that they're going to be in a relegation. And in some respects, the teams that don't get the decision spend a year in the championship to fight out um, for a promotion spot in 2021 might actually be in a better place. Um, So I I think we're, we're reading a little bit too much into... Um, whoever it is decided what that means for the sport, um, who will it be? I genuinely have no idea. Who will like it to be? London. Yeah. Um, on the basis of the fact that I think that's the only credible decision 
the sport can make in terms of uh, on and off field standards on field uh, they were the team that were relegated in Toronto were promoted so that they are the last team that were in Super League and are proven and um, they also built a squad that was competitive at the bottom end of Super League with less money the last time they were in it yeah. um, and and over the weekend before the, the the bids were decided upon they announced that they they, they may be moving into a round at Wimbledon which is a 9,000 at the Art All Seater Stadium with 800 corporate facilities, and, and for me that is your least worst option. And and whilst I get Toulouse are great, you've got to look at your wider expansion policy and say, how, if Toronto didn't fit, why does Toulouse? Um, in a world of potential coronavirus in 2021, while uh, the vaccine is is um, rolled out globally, then there's as many risks in bringing Toulouse in as they were taking Toronto out. So that would almost become a contradiction. And the other teams, I just think, uh, you know, need to prove themselves at championship level before they get elevated to Super League level. So uh, I, I'm sorry that uh, you, you've probably grown a beard uh, in the time that I gave you to answer. But I just think the background is more important than the decision. And, and it does relate to why the NRL and their corporate investors might be interested in coming on board because if they did these are the decisions they would be discussing yeah. as the the major shareholder so you know the fact that maybe featherston go you know, do get the decision uh, and, and a corporate investor perhaps allied to the nrl comes in and goes well actually we don't want three teams in the same postcode uh, we want a bit of young really alien talent to help develop a new team in ireland that might be the way it goes so in in it's it's important but it isn't yeah yeah I, I hear, and you're right. It could be a decision that's made, and then a year later they just go down anyway. And for me, like I'm, I'm, I'm an, I'm an expansionist. So my heart says Toulouse, my heart says London. Um, but you know, the the question is, is that what we want to do? Like you said, it's a contradiction. Why would we go Toulouse when we've already knocked back Toronto? So for me, I kind of feel like, and I, I could be 100% wrong, and we'll, the listeners will know as they're listening to this, but. I kind of feel like the criteria has been written for Bradford or someone like that, right? And which is, which, which is fine if that's what they want. And I've said this on a podcast before, but if we want a strong, um, a, a Northern club with a strong rugby league history and a lot of rugby league fans, then Bradford works. But if we like, it's that local versus global sort of thing again. And I, I just wonder, you know, we're talking about the NRL potentially coming in and being this like beacon for expansion, right? And that's what you and I want it to be if it was to happen. But on the other side of that, and the argument that I've seen a lot of in the last week or so is, like, the NRL's idea of expansion is Brisbane too. So what makes us think that the NRL aren't going to be, wouldn't be completely happy with a, with a rugby league, like, foundation um, club like Bradford there, um, strengthening sort of the heartlands? So I, I just wonder, you know... We've heard we've heard online both sides of the story. Like it's, you know, we've got fans that say, "Oh, the NRL will come in and they will do all of these great things for expansion and they'll make things right." But on the other side, it's kind of like, "Well, would they actually do that?" You know, so it's it's been quite interesting, and I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what they'd actually do. I think it's changed. I think if you'd have asked them what they would have done in March, yeah. then that would have been bringing a, a new team in the NRL in a market that is already virtually secure and guaranteed. So you are looking at, you know, 
Wellington, Brisbane to some somewhere where we can go where we know there's an instant return. Yeah. Um, but I do think that perspective has altered. Um, and the interesting thing, I think, is that there is expansion now in, in, on the NRL agenda. Yeah. Uh, and it comes through things like PNG Hunters and yeah. the Fiji Silvertails. Yeah. Uh, and I think that some of the work that's that's going on in the Pacific area is expansion. But I, I, I just think what, what the NRL are aware of is that they are getting close to a very saturated sporting market. Yeah. And the finances in the Australian broadcasting realm are very much the same as, as they are here. Yeah. And they are finite and they probably have reached a peak. Um, so, so I think for the NRL to significantly expand in the sense of how do they get into new markets in partnership rather than pay for it all themselves, then they need to look at a very different financial model. Um, and, and I know that uh, clearly there are issues with China at the moment. Um, but, you know, there, there is a case for saying on the road sells a little bit and the, the NRL need to take some of their teams and, and take them and, and allow them to be seen to be played in different geographical locations. But the quickest and easiest way to sell a brand and to market the whole as opposed to the half is to buy the other half or to have an investment in the other half. Yep. Um, and I think that is where suddenly on, on so many different levels, having a single body that controls rugby league in both hemispheres is actually extremely attractive yeah. um, because you do get a say then in where the sport is going. And, and, and I think there's a case for saying um, even here where money is going to be very, very limited for the next two or three years. One thing we don't do is we don't join up enough. Yeah. Um, we, we are going to have to look at the idea over here of what, what do we mean and how do we define a feeder club? Because yeah. there are some very, very historic names um, who do fantastic work in their community, who need a reason to be there. And, and a reason is a competition that they can win, uh, but also to generate talent and to, to, to take a residue of talent back. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily can or should or would even want to win Super League, but they have a valuable place. But if they're left to fish on their own, there is a possibility that they could die out. So I think that there needs to be some strategic thought about how the big clubs look after the little clubs. And then you extend that out from, say, well, how do the big clubs look after, say, a market like Europe, where instead of clubs, we've got fledgling nations. Yeah. So every Super League club by way of uh, practical support, if not financial, to help with what's going on in Ukraine or Serbia or yeah. Norway or Holland or Jamaica or Trinidad. or and, and I think once you start then saying that could be on a table if somebody could pull that together and a, a corp... Yeah, I think that the mistake we make is we think the NRL are going to finance all of this, so yeah. it's their expansion. Yeah. But it's not. It's be financed by a corporate partner yeah. and that corporate partner may well be going into the offices of the NRL and saying we'd like to invest in your game and that same division of a corporate partner with a different office in London and or Toronto or somewhere might be going into the Super League and saying what will we get if we bought into your game it may well be that let's just say 
it is Rothschild Bank, who I know Super League have, have at least had some preliminary dis discussions with. Yeah. They look at the sport and say, is there any chance we could have a little bit more of it? We'll put some more money in, but yeah. if we could have ground-level investment that includes a World Club Challenge, a World Cup, um, there's a way of having a structure over here that I think we could come up with something that is akin to origin. Um, it would need some shifting around, and uh, again, change is, 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 is something that needs a lot of debate before you institute it. But I, I think we're at a point where it might be some West or something like that. But there is the possibility of, and if, if you're playing conferences, um, if you if everybody doesn't have to play each other home and away, which you, mm. you know have to be enshrined just because we've been that way, um, and if we can get scarcity back, and if we can get that element of local derbies, but also end up with something that that's a little bit of a wider panorama, then actually, you know, if corporate investor and I'm just looking at figures and not names of teams, and I can be Actually, if you can ally the best of what you've got in NRL with the underdeveloped potential of what you might have in Super League, and you might have a in um, you know the the Far East and the Pacific mm. and the Americas, I, I've got a check here which I'd like to give you, mm. um, and then the game needs to decide who distributes that money and what they expect back from it. So I th there's a huge amount of debate about governance. But I think the important thing is that the NRL now needs to be seen to be at least thinking this way. Yeah. And that's where I think expansion is on their agenda. And it is it, if we get locked into which teams it should be, like who should be the 12th Super League team, yep. you lose the focus of what you're trying to achieve. Yep. And and I would guess the reason you've been an expansionist, and, and I, I, I have as well right from the very beginning, is that we just want to share what we think mm. is something that people will like. We want the players that play it to get maximum reward and recognition for what they do. Um, and we want to end the season to crown a global champion. And I all feel that we've been a part of something and, and that the, the, the sum, you know, it leads to something that's greater than its parts. And, and I think it's not about disenfranchising anything. It's, it's about being the best you can be. Mm. And I'm not sure the sport has ever done that. And you don't get many opportunities to do that. The S Super League 25 years ago w was the last opportunity. And, yeah. and if you look back, we probably haven't done it as well as we could have done over here. Um, but this is another of those moments yeah. where something absolutely horrible, like a pandemic, has said, just sit down and throw away everything you think you believe and start again, and what would you like to be? And, and if we have those discussions, I, I, I honestly think that there is massive potential for rugby league. It's, it's true, and it's very scary, you know, Phil, because you, you mentioned Super League 90, 95, 96, 97, those years, and it's been 25 years since that sort of all started. And back then, like in Australia anyway, like 94, 95, these were like, this was the height of popularity of our sport in, in New South Wales and Queensland in particular, but the rest of the nation was starting to take notice. We, we had clubs in, in WA and New Zealand and, and, you know, Adelaide Rams came in and, you know, Melbourne Storm soon after, but things were going great. And then Super League, the Super League war happened and we've been sort of treading water ever since. And only now, 25 years later, I believe the NRL is kind of like rugby league in, in Australia is back to 
the le- the height, the popularity of the, that it was, but it's taken all this time, and now all of a sudden there might be another opportunity to to make things great, uh, to to expand on on where we're at, and do can we take it, and, and what's the right way forward, and uh, yep, yep. I think there's a, there's another. Um change as well that that Super League has sort of tempted us with but we haven't done properly and that is now when the fixtures come out over here Mm. a lot of people instead of looking what their local derby game is are looking when can they have a a weekend away in Perpignan yeah yeah um you know there's something about being stuck on the M62 motorway for four hours or getting on a plane <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, and going to a, a sunshine destination. And, and I, I've been tempted by that. I'd, I'd go back to something else, which, which you'll probably shake your head and go, um, there is a gentleman that needs to knock on the door in a minute and take you away. <laughs> yeah. But I think we need to be revisionist about the 1997 World Club Championship. Yeah. And it came far too early. Yeah. And it exposed how far ahead the NRL was yeah. from Super League at that time. Yeah. But anybody who went and watched any of those games, even in the knowledge that they were going to be one-sided, and, and I'm looking in the group stages, yeah. there was a massive exorcism about that. Yeah. And I, and I can, you know, I, I was extremely lucky that I came and covered the first 10 days in Australia rather than um, stay over here because I, 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 we wanted to get somebody who would get the angle from over there because all of the journalists here were going to clearly go and watch Bradford who, who were our champions and we thought would be competitive and, and you know play Auckland who were I think uh, you know the lowest ranked team in the, the, the NRL at the time and, and, and Auckland just took them to the cleaners and, and all it gave was everybody here and uh, the opportunity to, to bemoan uh, the direction of travel that we were going. But I wanted to go over there and just see what the reaction was in places like North Queensland and Adelaide and um, you know Brisbane and London when they you know the the Battle of the Broncos when yeah. you know, one of the first games that was played just to see what the reaction was and then come back and see how the fans over here even in the knowledge that they were going to watch teams get beaten what they liked or disliked about the idea that they weren't in Halifax needs to pick a, a team completely at random and not decry in any way from them being called Blue Sox at the time to playing, um, you know, I, I don't know, Perth. Yeah. And, and actually, there was a stirring there. Yeah. Um, if I use Leeds as an example, um, Leeds were extremely resistant to summer rugby and the, the advent of Super League, mainly because they'd spent um, probably seven or eight years trying to chase Wigan before Super League came in and virtually bankrupted themselves. The club was at one of its lowest ebbs in history and it didn't to the idea of Super League and, um, and, and summer rugby. But on the night that Adelaide Rams came over and, on, and that night was a beautiful summer evening at an old historic ground um, but that the, you know any rugby league fan across the world would have um, some kind of recognition of and it was a shirt sleeved occasion, and it was an uh, you were playing a team who you didn't know many of the guys who mm. were wearing their shirt unless they were internationals. And yeah, there was an exceptional try that, and yes, but it's almost like you trace the start of Super League and and Leeds becoming a force in it to that game, mm. and that's extremely simplistic. A lot of other things happened on that road, but the truth is that people bought into the fact that. 
Um, Inter-hemisphere competition was something a little bit exciting and a little yeah. bit different, but we never capitalised on it because we did it at the wrong time. We almost, we almost tried I'd again. L- I'd like to bring that back. Yeah, we almost tried again. And I remember, I'll, I'll take you back to, like, one of my earlier memories. So I was 90, I think it was 93 or 94. So I was, I was 8 or 9. But when Wigan came over to play the Broncos um, in, in the World Club Challenge, that was massive. Like, Wigan was like, Wigan was a brand that all rugby league fans on this side of the world knew. They were the Broncos of the, of the era over in the UK, and it was huge. It was a massive event, big crowd, great game. But then that Super League sort of championship that you mentioned in ninety in 97, I feel like that was the start of, like, that was the start of us Aussies, and I'm not saying this is right, and I'm not saying this is how I feel or what I think, but I think rugby league fans here in Australia, we, we kind of generally believe that our competition is better, our clubs are better, our players are better, and it stems back from that yeah. competition and because of it we've been too scared to sort of go back to it but we've had world club challenges you know every almost every year there was a few where we missed out and there are clubs like the roosters like i know after the roosters won the grand final a couple of years ago nick politis on channel nine he was being interviewed and he he said to one of his players we're going to to england he was very excited about about it it was a big deal for him it was a big deal for that club and you can see that but not all clubs feel that way. The Storm, you know, we've that you know, on occasion they've said, I think it was, I forget which year it was, but I think Leeds had to come over here or they wouldn't play. So yeah. it's, it's sort of hit and miss. But a few years ago we did have um, three Australian clubs go over there and we sort of half tried it. So I know I, I was excited because my St. George Illawarra Dragons were heading over and I think Souths went over as well. Mm. And But it was just a one-off game, you know, and it's kind of like, well, fans were excited about this and there's an opportunity to have some sort of competition there or do something but a one-off meaningless trial match you know it's kind of like well what a waste of time i just feel like in a case but if it was the pinnacle of the that's right yeah if it was the pinnacle of the two domestic competitions and it was and they were playing for the semi-final spots and you crowned the overall the overall champion of champions on a a night where you know and and let's say it's old trafford and there's 70 odd thousand people there like there is for the for the for the grand final you know i I can't see you know any australian team objecting to being part of that i I think you you know you raise a good point that that brisbane um wigan game in 94 i think there were like fifty four thousand people there um i you know i i I can remember going to allen road and seeing Leeds play uh, Canterbury in 2005, 39,000 people there. The, the place was sold out. There, there is a market for these games, provided they mean something. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is why if you were a corporate investor, you would look at what could we do um, with changing too much in each of the hemispheres. I think there is a fair bit of work to do in the north to bring it up to the standard of the south. And part of that would have to be generating talent for... Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and France, because I think we've lost um, that that ability to have a, a Northern Hemisphere international window of consequence. Yep. Um, but assuming that the corporate investor would make some changes to the outline competition in the North, you wouldn't want to change too much of the NRL. The NRL shouldn't be too bothered about yeah. changing what is successful. Yeah. What they should be doing is grafting on a another leg, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that the other thing that you mentioned about um, the the Aussie sense of superiority, which is yeah. completely and utterly deserved, 
goes back to international football. Now, Great Britain have not won an international series since 1970. Um, They haven't won a home series since 1959. Um, You can't tell me that one of the successes of Origin is purely because they haven't got the chance to beat the Poms anymore. Um, And I did have a credible England stroke Great Britain team. You did have a a World Cup that didn't know who was going to win it every four years. You did have um, Alliance Tour built into um, that schedule. Every second year, you'd be getting a Lions team that was representative of the four nations that that find it coming over and touring. I think you'd find that um, that dynamic would slightly change, and the NRL as a product would be enhanced by having something slightly above it that players would be aiming for. So, of course, you want to play Origin at the moment. Of course, if you're a Pacific Islander, you want to play Origin because, A, you get paid very good money, but, B, that's probably the most intense and biggest game you're going to play in. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think if, if you're a, if you are an investor, and you can say some of this money goes to a World Cup, some of it goes to whatever the um, domestic calendar is. There has to be international windows built into it. Our domestic clubs have to be a, a, a pathway through to the international game. Actually, you do all of that for not a huge amount of money, comparatively speaking. Yep. If you wanted to do it in rugby union, it cost you an absolute fortune. So now is it. Actually, through all of the the trials and tribulations and difficulties that the NRL and Super League have gone through financially, now is a really, really good time to invest. And that's why I wouldn't dismiss this story out of hand. um, Because I think if there are people with vision in both hemispheres who have power and are also talking to people with money, that's how you get change. Yeah. And it's, it's just a few tweaks, as you say. So you mentioned, what do we do with some of our, like, champ, like our weaker clubs, for want of a better word? Well, here in Australia, the clubs that, like, you look at the Newtown Jets, they're, they're a feeder club to the Cronulla Sharks. You look at the North Sydney Bears, they're a feeder club to the Roosters. They still exist. They're still successful. They still have fans, and they do well in, their, in the New South Wales Cup. There is a place for them, but it's not necessarily at the top of the tree in the NRL, and... I think we need to start some of the English clubs, like, I won't name any because I don't think it's fair, but there are clubs over there who need to sort of understand they're probably not at the top of the tree anymore, but how do they develop players in, in the heartlands and how do they bring them through? You mentioned Origin being something that it would be great to replicate or have something similar in the UK. I think you guys, like, England versus France that's your state of origin or a home nations like England and Wales or England and Ireland or, or what have you. Um, that is what, this is where pathways need to be built and that sort of international scene can become state of origin for you guys on that side of the world. And if those things happen, then, then you know, anything, anything can happen from there. And I think all of a sudden the kangaroos would take notice and Australian fans would start to respect and say, hold on a second. We need to beat these guys now. It's not about state versus state anymore. The kangaroos need to beat England and France and, and New Zealand needs to beat Wales and Ireland and all that sort of thing as well. I think it's important. And that's, you know, it only takes a few tweaks for that to happen. You mentioned the value. You keep mentioning this. The, a statement you keep making is maybe now's the right time. You know, the value. And I, I the, the Sky um, article mentioned that 50%, a 50% stake in Super League would be worth approximately seventy-five million pounds, and to us Aussies, that's about one hundred and thirty-five million dollars, maybe a little bit less, a little bit more, depending on what 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 day it is. 
And when I first read that, I thought, oh, that seems a bit much. Like, I thought it was kind of overvalued. That was my gut feeling immediately when I read that. But I sort of did a little bit of digging, did some more research, and I found that the NRL is valued at $3 billion Australian, which is a considerable amount more, obviously. So in a world where the NRLs were $3 billion, then yeah, maybe the Super League's worth, you know, $250 million. <laughs> You know, all of a sudden there's a huge gap. Yeah. And, and I, just, I just wonder if you think that's fair value or if you, like, wh what, is that enough money to actually make a difference or would the NRL need to keep contributing? How does that all work? It just blows my mind. It depends what you're buying. Yeah. And I think this is where we're in the uh, realms of speculation. But if I was um, a corporate sport investor yeah. uh, and you look at, you know, what's happened in places like Manchester City and um, uh, San Francisco 49ers, we're, we're looking at major sporting global partnerships now. Um, and I wouldn't be saying you're, you're buying necessarily clubs you're buying is a sport yeah. um, and whilst the governance would have to be right and whilst the club owners would have to have a say, it would have to be of an independent investment level so that the club's responsibility is to play their fixtures and be the best they can be at whatever level they're playing at. Yeah. Um, but as a corporate investor, you would say, if I put this amount of money in, and actually, what you're asking me for on a global basis would probably buy the right arm of an NFL linebacker. Um, I would want to be able to have some degree of say and influence and control over the pinnacle of the pyramid. Yeah. So whilst I would leave it to the person that is um, our agent in the respective countries to deal with the domestic competition... I need to know that the World Cup is taking place every four years. I need to know the development yeah. work that is going to getting us at least eight competitive teams when that World Cup takes place, and ideally a tournament of 16 or 24, and one that starts three years earlier, qualifying competition in five continents. I need to know that in within the domestic competition, the window for kind of international representative rugby that's going to keep that boiling um, i need to know that everybody's committed to the idea of taking games on the road now if that means um season ticket holders are going to lose one of their games because we advantageous to play mm. wigan and st helens in new york or it's it might be it might be real good fun to take Brisbane and north island to san francisco then and that's part of what we, we would like as a return on our investment um, because we want to sell all the things that go with it, like television rights and merchandising and licensing, um, on the back of all that. Yeah. So we, we, we're not really bothered what the fixtures look like. Um, I, I think the other thing is uh, that it, what's interesting, if you, if you are a conspiracy theorist, it can mean more than uh, more than us, is that for the ever, for all reasons the two domestic competitions on the same weekend next year mm. now again yeah you, know, you look at that through a certain pair of spectacles and you uh, that's the very very beginning where competitions became aligned yeah so i think if you're the investor you say we want to be in your case a winter sport in our case a summer sport but actually defined from the point of view um in such a way that we can market a competition that is common. Yeah. 
So we start on the same day, it ends on the same day. That gives us X number of weeks. You take into that account um, an international window, an origin window. That means we have X domestic fixtures. We're not going to tell you to play in those domestic fixtures other than like this area, that area, and that area to begin it. You run that locally. But what we are seriously considering doing is investing in all of the game. Yeah. I think you'd then say if you're a responsible sport, um, for that sort of money, we an extra 5% for junior development. Yeah. Um, we want a school program over here. We want development officers in non-traditional areas, um, something that, again, used to be externally funded and, and that was cut from self-government. Um, you know, the sport didn't or decided that it wouldn't use that as a as a way it was going to spend its money. The club kept everything. And, and again, I think you'd have to say this is where independent governance comes in and, as much as anything, that there has to be a level of money allocated to each strata of the game. And you're you quite rightly about clubs have got to, to, to have a role. Um, I look at Batley over here, yeah. who are an absolutely classic example of a club that know their place. And it is no coincidence whatsoever that they are not interested in being in Super League. Yeah. They want to be the best they can be in their community. And their community is along with probably Hunsler, has changed arguably more than any other. Yeah. Um, the, the, the social demographic, the, the economic um, uh, companies that used to support those areas are, are just not there anymore. Yeah. Um, but what Batley have said is, if we're sustainable in our community and get 2,500 people down at our stadium, and if we can wake up and we can parade it on town hall steps, and that gives us enough money to be self-sufficient for the next five years. And we can produce a player every now and again and sell them to Wigan. And, um, and because we've got a good working relationship with Huddersfield, if they've got a couple of academy lads that they can't use, they can come and develop their career with us. Or if there's an outstanding guy who's played multiple matches for... Uh, is an England international wants to finish his career with us. We're exactly the place that yeah. uh, you know we can give him the perfect. There are so many synergies if you look for them, but if you just leave everybody to hang out to dry, then some of them are not going to be there when you go and uh, pick the fruit at the end. Of the year. True. Um, so I, I think um, it, there is clearly a way of doing it, but the the game has a responsibility for the lower division clubs here. They need two major events a year. One is they need a championship final. So they play all year to get to crown who is the best team that isn't a Super League team. Yeah. And they play that at a neutral venue that is of historic significance, somewhere like Headingley, for example, that has all the facilities. And they get ten or 15,000 people there and they win a, a title and they get an amount of money for winning that title yeah. that means that their life gets comparatively easier for the foreseeable future. And the second event is um, what is, we tried it once so far and called it the 1895 Cup, but it but it's a cup competition that ends up at Wembley yeah. at the same time as the Challenge Cup final. So instead of having two teams, uh, you have four. You have two teams from the traditional heart, heartland areas of the game get to experience again what it's like to be at Wembley and you get an event whereby you get a greater mix of fans and it becomes... Uh, a, a more exciting thing to be a part of because every constituency of the game is, is represented there. And the thing about Batley is you go back to the very first Challenge Cup that was played in 1897 and they won. 
Yeah. So there is a place for them, there is a history of them. What we need to do is we need to find a way to make them valuable again, but they um, need to realise that for the money they would get as part of whatever the new world looked like, that doesn't necessarily give them a seat at the top table. It comes down to opportunity, and it shouldn't matter how good you are, what gender you are, uh, if you have any disabilities... If you, what country you come from, there needs to be opportunities to play our sport and, and for, to have these events, like you say, I really believe in that. You, you mentioned clubs knowing their place and the championship clubs and the lower clubs, uh, lower division clubs and all that sort of thing. If the NRL were to purchase part of Super League, wouldn't that just be the top 12 clubs though? Like Super League is the top 12 clubs and the RFL control the rest. So would does it all need to come together and be part of one big picture for it to work properly? Yes, 100%. Yeah. I think that's the change there needs to be, that um, it, it needs to be independent governance in the true sense of the word. And whilst I accept that the RFL is, um, the, the board is populated with people who, who don't have particular vested interests and come from a, a very diverse background and, and are independent, I, I think um, the sway of the clubs above the in Super League, it still dominates. Now, the RFL had the same vote that every single Super League club did on the Toronto decision. So, now the you know, Wakefield had, had the, and, and nothing wrong with Wakefield, but they had the same say in the decision that the RFL yep. as a corporate body did. Now, that can't be right, I don't think. Yeah. So, I think you move to a situation where um, clubs are effectively licensed um, and they are given a certain amount of money uh, and their their job is to come up with the right facilities, the best blend of players and youth talent that they can, uh, a marketing strategy that is measured, and contribute to the competition. Uh, and I think at the same time, the competition realises that... Uh, uh, we've had this debate a lot over here, yeah. and um, all our trees were planted in a certain forest in 1895, and through nobody's fault, um, you know, wood rot setting in some part of that forest. Now, you can either watch bits of them die away and look to plant other trees in soil that is no longer fertile, or you can try and buy the forest next door or the land that's vacant next door and plant some trees there mm. as well. Mm. Keep the best of what you've got, but also look to new markets and new areas new saplings and new and i think unless you do both and you look after the side to the point where they achieve the potential that they've got um but you actively search for one thing about toronto and, I, and i'm sure uh, you you probably feel the same is that whatever the rights and wrongs of David Argyle and his balance mm. sheet, whatever the rights and wrongs of Carlo Livolsi doing a, an interview from the back seat of his car, 10,000 people who didn't know rugby were sort of watching the game and enjoying it. And you go, well, what the club could do that at the moment? The, the, St. Helens can't get an extra 10,000 fans. Warrington can't. Yeah. Hull can't. Um, so the fact that they've done that, and they've done it in such a way that they started playing teams at the very bottom. You know, we don't know what the potential would have been like in Toronto because they, they hadn't played Super League at home yeah. by the time we, we, we dispensed with them. You, you know, I, I know sir, from people at the clubs like um, Warrington, Leeds, at St. Helens and Wigan, 
all clubs who have a, a travelling fan base. There were anything up to 1,500 fans you know, at the dates their fixtures were and planning on going. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, they've never had that in Toronto and yeah. suddenly 1,500 fans coming into your city and all of a sudden 1,500 fans in Toronto say, if all of these people are around my city, they go and I think I might need to go and uh, at least see what all the fuss is about. You, you, you grow a lot quicker once you've established a footprint. Um, and, and I think that's what the sport can do. So there has to be a, an element to, to traditional clubs, yeah. but there also has to be a realisation that resource has to go to furnishing you. Yeah, yeah. We agree on so many things, Phil. That whole 1,500 fans in Toronto just makes me sad that we, we didn't get to see that. I know it, it just would have taken... It would have organically marketed the game as well. I know when I was in... I was in Miami a few years ago um, with some friends and the Orange Bowl was on, which is like the college um, college football grand final. And we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know it was on when we booked, booked the holiday. But there were people from... One of, the, one of the colleges was from Iowa State. And there were people in town everywhere wearing jerseys, chanting, singing, running amok throughout Miami. So we bought tickets and went to the and game. And you want, you want to be a part of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course you want to be yeah. a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. It's such, it, oh. and that's what I mean about the event culture. Yeah. And and it's not something you, that we're doing particularly well. State of Origin is a great event to yeah. a very limited audience. Yeah. But State of Origin could be anything. If yeah. it was a global event played to, uh, you know, played in a view that was, um, you know, and the, some Australians, I have absolutely no doubt, who get on a plane and fly to London to watch Origin. Definitely. I don't just mean Steve Mascord. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, you make something uh, a must-see. The, the, the NFL over here in London is a really good example. I, yeah. I don't know if the plan at some point is to establish a, a team there, but what I do know is it doesn't matter who they bring, they will fill the state yeah. playing at. And they fill it because, A, there are some genuine fans of the teams that play here who need a chance to see them play. B, there are some fans of the sport who just want to be part of that big tailgate. Okay? There are some fans that fly in to yeah. watch their team. And you put that together, that's a real heavy mix. And yeah. we've never really done that. And that's partly because certainly over here we've never had to do that. And the, the most exciting thing about corporate investment um, – is that I think we can do some things we've never been able to do before in this part of the world. Yeah. Um, I think it's a di slightly different imperative in, in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's bolstering what's already there. I think, the, you know, Peter Volandis, and I wouldn't dream of speaking for, for somebody like him, but I, but I think the people that run the game over there can see that their income streams at the moment are probably at their highest or finite or need, need streams to underpin them for the future. But the, probably not too much needs to change other than you just need to do what you're doing better. Whereas here, I think an influx of the kind of corporate investment they're talking about, that could bring actual change if it's not handled by the clubs. Yeah. If it's handled by a genuine independent governance body where the, the clubs get an amount of money that makes them financially safe for a period of a, a, a of a, maybe a three-year license. Yeah. But they have... Um, obligations under that license to stay in the competition. Now, again, one of the things we haven't spoken about about the Northern Hemisphere is 
where does promotion relegation sit in all yeah. this? And is it an outdated concept in a sport like rugby league? And 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 for me, it actually is. Yeah. And and whether we like that or not, whether we agree with that or not, it's totally irrelevant. It's the world has changed. Um, and professional sport, elite sport, means exactly that. Yeah. And whilst it would be lovely to still be democratic and egalitarian and Northern Union and um, yeah, uh, left of the establishment, that's great. But corporate money is, is makes you a big sport these yeah. days, whether you like that or not. Um, and it's how you adapt to it, how you make the best of it, how you maintain your core principles whilst accepting it, your vision of what you want to be. And, and what I have found, I think, talking to some people over here, is that there are people that do share that vision. And, and it's too easy to label as expansion or flat cap. Yeah. And actually, it's, it's something a little bit bigger than that. It's yeah. about where does your sport fit in the future and if you want to be local be the best local you can be um, but then don't complain that it's you haven't got the yeah. kind of broadcasting yeah. coverage that you if you want to be global then you're gonna to have to give some little bits up to be global yeah uh, and there's nothing wrong with it you know it, it, it is a series of negotiations so, so again to go back to your point of what's it worth depends exactly on what you're buying yeah Guys, just interrupting the chat with Phil to let you know about our sponsor for this season. Yep, it's Matty Haynes, matthaynessports.com.au. Check him out. His designs are fantastic. He's a brand designer to the developing nations. He's a jersey designer to the developing nations. Uh, and he also produces some kits as well. So if you need your logo, jersey, or kits designed or produced, then hit him up, matthaynessports.com.au. And uh, if you are getting a kit producer, it can be if whether you're a club, a nation, even if it's for your Oztag team or your touch footy team during the week, hit up matthaynesports.com.au. When you're asking for your quote or placing your order, let him know you're a kangaroo chaser because he is as well. He'll give you 10% off, uh, 10% off the quote, 10% off the final price. So thanks again, Matty Haynes Sports, for uh, supporting the show and uh, for supporting the kangaroo chasers out there as well. Now, back to my chat with Phil Kaplan. That's right. And, yeah, I love what you said there. Don't compl- If you want to stay local, don't complain. If, if free pizza is a sponsorship, then that's, that's, you know, that's the choice we've made. But I, I, what you're saying... And about, that's great. Yeah, that, you know. yeah, and that's fine. And what you're saying about promotion relegation, I, like, I agree with you, man. I, we agree on too many things. It's probably going to be a boring podcast. We just keep agreeing. But, <laughs> the, I mean... Promotion relegation works in the Premier League, and it has for a long time. And that's a much like, that's huge. Like it's just a huge sport, especially over there. But even so, if they started today, pr- promotion relegation probably wouldn't be the model that they chose. And and I think we need to to be ballsy enough to make that move. And it, it's a risk, you know, because will it work? Like would the and, and this is a point that um, that one of our listeners, Dave Hunter, uh, mentioned um, in my D- he slid into my DMs and said, well. If the NRL is spending $135 million to buy half of Super League, it could be a PR disaster over here because we, you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Phil, you know, we're tightening the purse strings and we've reduced development staff numbers during the COVID period. Guys like Tasbia Terry who have done an amazing yep. amount of things for the game internationally, like just an absolute, he'll be a saint of the game. Um, he's lost his job over here and he's just one of many. 
So for the NRL to make these sorts of cuts and then say, oh, hold on, we're, we're going to go invest $135 million over there, it kind of doesn't look great. So it's it's a risk because it has to pay off. The investment has to pay off. And yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on that sort of risk and what how that kind of looks. I, um, I, I think, again, you've got to look at what other sports are doing to see where we fit in. Yeah. Um, there is a feeling within, you, you, you mentioned football, soccer over here, yeah. and um, it, it's it's not an apples for apples comparison. Yeah. Um, but the truth is the top six clubs in the Premiership are looking to form a European league. Now, you know, th- there's no concept of promotion relegation there, however historic and traditional it is. They are looking to get maximum revenue and investment um, because they are hocked up to the eyeballs with corporate finance. So, yeah. you know, for Manchester United might look at, we could play Aston Villa next week or we could play Real Madrid. Um, I think, you know, the Real Madrid option is the one for us. Yeah. Now, where does that leave Aston Villa? Aston Villa then get to play um, West Ham United. Is it, Are enough people going to be interested in watching those games on a loop um, but not ever getting a taste of playing the Manchester United. Yeah. I think if you looked at Premiership Rugby Union over here at the moment, which clearly has a, a greater salary cap than than Rugby League does, um, that's brought it more financial problems in the current year. They yeah. would stop promotion relegation tomorrow if they could. Yeah. Uh, if uh, and, and bizarrely, they are the mirror image of Rugby League. If they could get a, a, a maybe a, another team in the north of England to have a greater geographical spread of their top flight teams, they would pull up the drawbridge tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and whilst you know they will they will say you know a team like um, London Welsh is very important to it, it clearly isn't. You know, um, their market, they, they basically don't have, apart from um, London Irish, a team that's in London anymore. Yeah. And they realise their market was saturated, a little bit like Sydney with, you know, NRL teams. And, and there is change. You know, change is coming. Cricket, the, the 100 over here, mm-hmm. which was derided as a concept, has already bought in corporate partners that county cricket can't bring in. Mm. So, you know, it, it goes back to the fact that... Um, Nothing is sacrosanct after you have a pandemic that exposes you to all the risk that we probably knew was there but didn't acknowledge. Yeah. Um, and I think another, again, I'm, I'm not making a case for Toronto per se, but the fact that one of the reasons um, they weren't allowed to move forward was because there was a concern that they were so self-focused on a single owner that's no different to three quarters of the Super League teams that are currently operating mm. and virtually every other professional club in every other sport. And if that's the way it is, then what you've got to do is make yourself attractive and exciting to other investors. And Carl also was part of the original investment group of the Wolfpack. The fact that David Argyle thought he could do it all himself and Carlo Livolsi didn't feel he had any say over the money that he put in and that's why when David Argyle stepped aside, Livolsi wanted to perhaps come in and rescue it. You know, there are investors. There are people that that, that see the value of professional sport. But what I'm not going to put up with is I'm going to put all my money in and tomorrow you're going to tell me that because my team had four or five bad results that all of that money has been wasted. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't run a business like that, I'm yeah. afraid. So I, I think models of promotion and relegation 
um, don't fit the economics of the modern sporting world at the moment. Um, and virtually every club who is outside of the football Premier League can't survive. And and if the you, you talk about, I think we started this by talking about blank piece of paper moments mm. in history. Mm. If the, if soccer over here had a blank sheet of paper, there is absolutely no way there would be 92 professional clubs. Mm. Yep. It's completely unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and I think what you've got to do is get to the point where you realise what is and isn't workable and you do something about it rather than somebody comes to you and says, it can't continue like this anymore. Yeah. It, the way things are at the moment without this corporate finance or without the NRL buying in or without a combination of both, if the Sky Television deal, once revealed, is of a level that is comparatively lower than it is at the moment, then what's going to happen is that some clubs at the top table will perish. Now, that's, you know, that can't, that isn't a model that works. We, we need to address that before somebody like, and I'm going to pick a club completely at random, so whoever's listening is a supporter of theirs, I'm <laughs> yeah. terribly sorry. Yeah. But, you know, let, let's just say Sky come in and say, we are going to give you half the amount of money you've got at the moment, and the owners at Castleford say, I'm sorry, but we can't survive on that, we're going out of business. Yeah. Uh, aren't we better determining our own future with uh, the kind of models we've been talking about in the knowledge that this could happen because certain clubs are precarious and try and firm the whole game from the base of the pyramid upwards, yeah. shine a light on the international pyramid and allow the resources then to trickle down with an independent governing body so that everybody benefits. Yeah. And if that means that, Batley play in a division where they've got a competitive game every single day, uh, every week that they take the field. And at the end of the season, they win a trophy, they get some money, and they play those teams again the following season. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Yeah. Yeah. To me, there isn't. Yeah. Because it's sustainable. Yeah. 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 I love how this conversation has just become like a big picture look at the game and, and what it should be. And you, you mentioned the pinnacle being the top of the international game and I agree that's where the pinnacle should be and it leads me to the, my last question Phil I could talk to you all day mate but unfortunately I've taken up too much of your time already but the final thought is really that it's a quote from Andrew Voss that got me thinking about this so Voss he said I think it makes a stronger game on a global scale I think that's a positive and this is NRL potentially buying Super League I think it's a positive but I also have some hesitancies uh, with them selling their soul to Australia. They need to maintain their own identity. And it kind of got me thinking about the NRL, the power that the NRL has at international rugby league level, right? So we've had, we, you mentioned the Denver test earlier, and the Denver test, you know, was meant to be, originally it was meant to be the first of, I think, three test matches over there, um, which were building up towards yeah. and, and aiming towards um, growing interest of our sport in the US for the World Cup in 2025. Now, the NRL kind of, you know, put their foot down and said, look, our clubs aren't happy sending a majority of players, and they have every right to, I suppose, because a majority of the top international squad players are from the NRL. We're not happy to send our players over there, for, over to Denver for a week. Uh, the clubs aren't happy with that. They could get injured, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, game two and three doesn't happen. And not only that, but the World Cup in the US, you know, doesn't happen in 2025, all because of what, you know, essentially what the NRL had to say about it. Now, all of a sudden, 
you know, the NRL buying into Super League could mean that they have even more power. Is that actually a good thing for International Rugby League? Is it a positive or, or could it be a negative? But let, let's look at it a slightly different way and, and go back to a phrase. But bearing in mind that we can talk about this for, for you know, all day, and I'd love to. And, yeah. and, and I think, unfortunately, we found two people whose entire life could revolve around <laughs> notional discussions on rugby league, and, and the rest of the world will be asleep by the time we finish. But the truth is, w- what you said there might not be quite how it's happening. Yeah. Um, it might not be the NRL buying into Super League. It might be a corporate partner buying into the NRL who can see the value of that deal having a, a Super League adjunct to it. And the NRL saying, well, actually, it might even be a corporate partner that would have been in, interested in Super League anyway. Because yeah. we, I, I, as you just said, I don't think the NRL's got that level of money. And if it did have that level of money, why would it want to buy into a competition that it might deem to be his failing when it could have Taz Battieri and 10 other players like him, uh, t- 10 other people like him, working in the Pacific, generating more and more players for the NRL? Yeah. I think this, this debate comes from just a slightly different place. I think it comes from the fact that the NRL realised there is a a danger of saturation, whatever they do, and a possibility of diminishing return um, from their from their current income streams. So they've got a product that works. They've got a market that's established. Um, the battles that they fought to get to where they are, they've effectively won, not least this year in, in getting a game back up in the manner that they have. So let's just say they're looking for more of the same. Their imperative to do this is to secure what they've got at the moment. And if that eventually involves a team in Perth or a second team in New Zealand or a, a Pacific Championship that you know they can pick the best players from, that's great. If it means that Canberra can go and play a game against Canterbury in Tokyo one day, that's also great. But if they're going to corporate finances and saying, we can offer you all of that and that's worth X. But what we could do is we could have a word with our, uh, our friends in the north, if you like, um, who actually probably need a little bit more than we do at the moment. But but we think that if we all work together, we could offer you Y, and Y would be a worth X times five. Everybody benefits. And if I'm the corporate person that they're going to, and I'm taking advice from rugby league people that, is this a worthwhile investment or I'm testing the water or I'm going to broadcasters and saying, we, we, we've been made this offer and, you know, would you be interested? And they say, well, where are the international games? And you go back to the, uh, the NRL and or Super League working together or, or not Super League, but whoever runs the sport over here, because I think we don't need to talk about it. But one, one of the issues that we've got here is that split governance just has caused all manner of problems. And one of the things that has to come out of all of the process that's going on at the moment here is is only one. It's, a, it's an unbelievable waste of resource at a time when you, we can't afford it. But let's assume you could you could talk to NRL as a, as a, as a body the game over here as a body and you impressed upon them that the money that you were prepared to invest was contingent upon them also prioritizing international rugby league and bringing those two halves together at club level i suddenly think you've you don't have to travel too far to retain your respective identities but actually then the sum of those parts is a massive hole that doesn't exist at the moment 
whole as in whole picture, not hole in the ground. Yep. So I think you just need yeah. to look at look at it that way rather than it's the NRL buying into something that they don't really want. It's like they're not going into this charity shop and picking up a nice jacket for free. Yeah. It's actually um, we've got two different wardrobes here. We, could, we can choose clothes from both of them. I also do think that the NRL – have seen that uh, Harry Grant, for example, um, d- just to sort of end on a, 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 another positive note, Harry Grant was brilliant when he went on loan to to you know to West this year, um, and and what he did in Origin was was on the basis of the fact that he had such a good season. Yeah, I guarantee you now, if Harry Grant had come and played for Warrington or Wigan or Leeds or Hull or St Helens, he'd have been just as good. But this competition would have got so much more out of having somebody of that talent playing over here, yeah. even if it was only for for a season. I, I think there are there are there are mutual benefits for everybody by thinking as one rather than as separate operations. I think that's the best way to end it, mate. Thinking as one and uh, excellent food for thought. Um, the listeners have asked me all week to talk about this topic and you've certainly given them more than what they would have anticipated or ex- or expected so thank you phil kaplan it's a pleasure i suspect the reaction of moats will be um locked away somewhere in a funny farm because uh, clearly <laughs> none of this will ever happen well for those who but, don't um, I think for, for those who don't feel that way where can they find you mate what do you what's your twitter handles where can they listen to you give you give your podcast a plug uh, and let us know. I, I think. Well, first, firstly, I think the one thing we all try and do is is, is promote debate, and I think that that's massive. Yeah. Um, so hats off to to you, and um, I think we're all in the the same boat that we want people to to talk about this stuff. We do. We don't necessarily want people to agree with us, but we want them to at least say, "Well, actually, I listened to it, and maybe uh, maybe there is a point, or maybe." Um, Maybe I don't agree with it, yeah. but if we don't debate it, we'll never change anything. Um, we, we 4020 magazine comes out every month. Um, that's the December issue is out now. Uh, it's on the scratchingshed.com website if you want a subscription. I think Masco Browns in Australia do get copies, so uh, you can contact them. 4020, sometimes live, sometimes not live, yep. is on YouTube um, and on all the various podcast providers who I'm too old to even remember what they're called. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Scratching Shed 2 if anybody wants to uh, follow up this debate. Um, and, and yeah, we're, we're, we, we just love talking rugby league and long may it continue. Sensational, mate. Well, I encourage all our listeners to jump over to 4020 this week where I'm sure they can hear all about the 12th club and who that is. Uh, I can't wait, mate. So, uh, Phil Kaplan, thanks for chasing kangaroos with me, mate. It's, it's a pleasure. Anytime.